Please open your Bibles to Galatians 6, or Galatians 5, I'm sorry. We, um, as uh, Pastor Greco mentioned, we've been going through this, this great epistle. Um, I have learned to appreciate it in a much deeper way and, and uh, have blessed, been blessed by the preaching of others and, and the study that I have uh, been able to enjoy um, as I prepared. Um, we Last week, Kurt taught from um, the first six verses of chapter 5. We'll pick up this evening with verse 7. And Paul, as you have uh, seen, has, I mean, it's, it's almost like um, he just, he keeps hitting the same thing in a different way um, as he combats the, the teaching that is there, the influence of the Judaizers. He's used his apostolic authority. He um, certainly has laid that out. He has used tightly developed logic and doctrinal reasoning. He's used analogy. He's shown the Galatians and taught them the, the futility of seeking adherence to the law as a means of salvation. He's reminded them, of course, of the work of Christ and how Christ became a curse for them and, and how we are blessed now as, as we recognize that, cur- that, that Christ bore the penalty of our sins and became a curse for us in his dying upon the cross. And in the opening verses of chapter 5, and again, he circles back to this idea of freedom in Christ in our text this evening. But before he focuses on that, he gives one more warning to the Gentiles. And it comes in a series of short remarks, rhetorical questions, warnings, and even sarcasm. And um, as I was trying to understand how to outline this text, I think it's best just to keep it under two headings. And really that first part we're going to call the frustration with false teachers, and the second part, the freedom of true believers in Christ. So uh, before we read our text, let us go to the Lord and ask His mercy and blessing upon the reading and preaching of His Word. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, we need You And Lord, we want your word. We desire your word. We're grateful for your word, Lord. It is the very words of God. You are a speaking God. You spoke the world into existence. And Lord, you speak to us today in and through your holy word. So Lord, we we invite your presence. We ask for your grace and wisdom as we look into your word. And we pray that you, by your spirit, who has inspired this word, has breathed it out, Lord, that you would apply it to our hearts this evening. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this place this evening be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Galatians 5, beginning with verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh." But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourselves, as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
Amen. And we praise God that He has spoken to us in His holy and inerrant Word. I have never run a marathon. You can probably look at me and say, that guy's not a runner. Um, I wish I ha would have run a marathon, and, and, and I think that I, as I've gotten older, I've realized that really I just want to be able to say I've run a marathon. Because I've talked to some runners. Some of you, I think, have, have maybe done that, have accomplished that feat. I just kind of want one of those oval stickers that says 26.2 on the back of my car. But I'm not a runner. I know there's a lot of training. There's a lot of effort that goes into running a marathon. I don't know if Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a runner, but he was at the very least, I think, a sports fan because he lot, uses a lot of sports analogies in, um, in his writing, in his epistles. And, and he opens our text this evening with one such analogy. He says that you were running well, Galatians. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? He's saying to the Galatians, you started well. What has happened? You were making progress in your Christian life, but something has hindered you. That word that our, our ESV Bible translates hindered could also be translated cut in. It's like when if you were running beside someone and they cut into your lane or maybe, or maybe let their foot slip over into your lane to trip you up. And if we think about Greek races, they were not on an oval track like we might have races today. They were kind of to the post and back. And that turn around the pole or the post was a crucial moment and a time in which people sometimes, uh, either intentionally or maybe unintentionally, would get tripped up. Paul is saying that the Judaizers had done just that. They had impeded the progress of the Galatians. Paul asked them... Who had done this? Well, Paul knew. Paul understood the doctrine. We, we've certainly understood that from, from studying this epistle so far. But he wanted the Galatians to recognize what was truly going on. Another thing that we must notice here is that Paul says that they had been hindered from obeying the truth. Now, when we think about truth, we think about a concept that you believe, a set of beliefs, maybe, if you will, that you believe and you accept and you make your own and you trust in. But what he says here, something happened that to trip you up from obeying the truth. So we are justified by faith alone and Christ alone, and there's no work that we need to do other than place our faith in Christ to become part of God's family. However, once we are in Christ, we should love Christ and seek to obey Him. There is, there is something to do in the Christian life. Pastor Greco spoke of this this morning. He said, if you follow Jesus, you become His. And part of being in Christ is growing in Christ-likeness, is obedience to His law. And so the apostle says that, that you have been hindered from in your obedience to the truth. Being a Christian means receiving and resting in Christ, on Christ alone for salvation. But it's a call to an active faith. Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And there's, there's certain things that, that Christ calls us to do as disciples. There's obedience that's required on our part. John Stott said that our creed is expressed in our conduct, and our conduct 
is derived from our creed. True faith, if you recall when we were working our way through the, the, the book of James, true faith is, a, is an active faith, is a working faith. It's a call to obedience. And really that, that first verse there, verse 7, is the first of a, a series of what I'm just calling frustrations of how Paul is expressing his, his frustration and his concern for the Galatians and his frustration for the, about these false teachers. The first one is that the Galatians had been hindered from obeying the truth. And these, I, I see in this, this first section here seven things that Paul lists out, really in rapid-fire succession. It's, it's almost like his frustration is such that he's just speaking in almost in fragments. And he's not really developing the, the, the thoughts. He's, he, has, he has had closely developed uh, reasoning already in the, the epistle, but here he's just kind of firing off with these one-verse things, and he is, he's warning the Galatians, and he's expressing the frustration with the false teachers. He goes on in verse 8 to remind the Galatians that the source of their teaching, the, the false teachers, is not from God. The Galatians, we read in chapter 1, the Galatians had been effectually called by God, Him who called you in the grace of Christ, he, he says in his opening verses. They knew that they were called of God. And Paul is saying that this false teaching that comes from the Judaizers is not of God. Their teaching, as we've, we've learned, was basically Jesus plus obedience to the law. Jesus plus circumcision. And really, any time that someone says that salvation is Jesus plus anything, your, your radar should go up, and you better run, because the message of Christ is Christ alone. And Paul is saying that the source of this teaching is not of God, which is another way of saying that it is of Satan. And of course, that is a strong warning. He goes on with an illustration, and, and he expresses Another, the third frustration, is that false teaching spreads dangerously. And he, he tells them that by telling them this little proverb that, that he has used elsewhere in his epistle, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, the whole lump of dough. As I was studying this, I actually got a little hungry for some homemade bread as I was thinking about this idea of, of yeast and leaven and how it leavens the whole lump. If you've ever made bread or, or seen someone make bread, you know that it only takes a little yeast to make the bread rise. And if the conditions are right, if the temperature's right, if the humidity's right, and the other, the other things are in the mix to, to make this active, it grows exponentially. And you'll have a, 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 a ball of dough the size of my fist or a little bigger that, that swells to take up the whole big bowl. And Paul is using that to help them understand that false teaching can spread in a similar way. Just a bit of false teaching can infiltrate the church and cause great harm. And if, if one of our doctrines are, are attacked by false teaching, our other doctrines are likely to fall as well because our doctrines are connected and, and God's Word is, is a systematic whole. Words matter. As one commentator said, false doctrine usually does not sound all that false at the beginning. 
false doctrine usually does not sound all that false at the beginning. And he goes on to ask, does it matter if we say justification by faith or do we have to say justification by faith is by faith alone? Is there a difference? Does it matter? Well, yes, there is a difference. And yes, it does matter. Because just like we've been saying all along that if you say salvation is by Jesus plus something else, as the Judaizers have said, then you are going off the rails. Then you are going into the area of false teaching. And that spreads quickly. False doctrine can spread dangerously. Paul then reminds the Galatians that these Judaizers will face God's judgment. Look with me um, at the second part of verse 10 where he says, The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. They will face God's wrath. These that are spreading this false doctrine, this false teaching, will face God's wrath. Paul speaks of the one who is troubling you and, and speaks in the singular. And, and perhaps there was, there was a ringleader to the teaching uh, that Paul had in mind. And various scholars have offered comment on whether Paul knew who individually who these people were. It seems, it seems uh, logical that he probably did. And maybe he was, he was not naming names just out of courtesy. But the point is, what he is saying is there is judgment coming upon those who spread false teaching. Those who are seeking to lead these Galatians astray will face God's wrath. And if you're, wonder, if you're wondering if God is serious about false teaching, read the little short epistle of Jude. And you'll see that God is very serious about false teaching. And then in verse 11 we see that, that Paul is again expressing frustration with these teachers in that they misrepresent him and his teaching. He says there in verse 11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross had, has been removed. And so it seems that some are saying and claiming that Paul was advocating for circumcision, or had at some time in the past. Now, we know that, that prior to Paul's conversion, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he said. He, he was a stickler for the law. And he tried to do everything right in, in obedience to the Old Testament law. Certainly, circumcision would have been part of that. It doesn't seem like they probably would, would have been talking about that. Maybe what they were saying is that he was inconsistent in his teaching concerning circumcision. For we know that he um, allowed Timothy to be circumcised. We see that in Acts 16. But then we've already read in Galatians 2 that Titus was not circumcised. And so Paul seems to have some degree of indifference to the practice if it is done for social and cultural reasons. However... If it's done as a requirement for salvation, he is adamantly opposed to circumcision. And so Paul is trying to set the record straight and say, and, and, and he is going against those who are misrepresenting his message. His real message, 
The one that he preached over and over again was that of Christ and Christ crucified. He told the Corinthians, and, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wis or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the central message of the Apostle Paul's teaching. And he's telling the Galatians, if I'm being persecuted, this would not happen if I was teaching their false doctrine. And, and probably that false doctrine was popular because evidently there was a strong influence of these Judaizers among them. And he's saying that, that my teaching is orthodox and it's faithful in that it preserved the offense of the cross. Now, this idea of the offense of the cross is something that Paul has spoken of in other places. Um, and... and uh, I think maybe it's hard for us to kind of wrap our heads around. There's, there's a cultural offense to the cross among the Jews and the Romans. It was an offense to the Jews, as we've already said, because, because the Old Testament law says that those were cursed that hung on a tree. It was an offense to the Romans because it was the place of indescribable suffering. And the, the, even the word excruciating, where we, the word that we use to describe the, the most the, the worst pain that, that we can imagine comes from that word from the, for the cross. And so there's an offense culturally, but, but Paul's talking about much more than just a cultural offense to the idea of hanging someone on the cross. The offense of the cross comes because it tells us in no uncertain terms that we cannot save ourselves. We like to think we're pretty good. I've said this before, if you go down to Katie Mills Mall and ask people if, they, if they're going to heaven, many of them, many of them will think they're going to heaven because they're, quote unquote, pretty good. Because they think they're better than the next guy. We like to do things ourselves. We, we like, and, and, and in our nation and in our culture, we admire those that pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, that do things on their own, that have that spirit of good old American ingenuity and independence. And too often, that's applied to this idea of our salvation. But the offense of, of the cross comes because it says that you are a sinner. It says you cannot save yourself. It says that somebody else had to pay the penalty for your sins. The cross says there is no forgiveness outside of Christ. As one commentator wrote, the cross pronounces a thunderous no to all human goodness. The cross lays us bare before God and it exposes our wickedness and our evil. The cross does say you can't measure up. But the cross also says that Jesus did. You can't, but Jesus did. Jesus has. Jesus has perfectly obeyed God's law. Jesus did pay the penalty for sin. There is a way of salvation. And the cross says two things. It says, you're a sinner and you can't. But it also says that Jesus has and Jesus saves. Christ, who is of infinite worth, has paid the penalty of our sins if those, for those His own, those of sins which are an offense to a holy God. I invite you today, as you, were, as you were invited this morning, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, come to Him. Make this the day of salvation. 
Jesus has paid the penalty for sin. He paid it all, all to him I owe. Paul is reminding the Galatians that his message is Christ alone, not Christ plus anything. And the proof of that was that he endured persecution for it. And so he's, he's kind of saying, this is a reality check here, because I'm being persecuted, I'm, I'm preserving the, the, the true offense of the cross in how it comes a, against that idea of human goodness. And he's saying, they are misrepresenting me. These false teachers are misrepresenting my message. So Paul's frustration comes from the fact that the Judaizers have hindered the Galatians. Their message, their false teaching is not from God. It spreads dangerously. It will incur God's wrath and judgment. And they had misrepresented Paul and his message. And then in verse 12, Paul uses language that that seems very odd and somewhat shocking to us, uses sarcasm against these false teachers. He says in so many words, you are so excited about circumcision, why not go all the way and become a eunuch? What is Paul saying here? Is he just trying to be funny? Is he just using a little guy's talk, a little construction site humor as, he is, as he's writing about this idea of circumcision? I think there's much more going on here. Yes, there is some sarcasm to a degree, but the main message that Paul is trying to get across to the Galatians is that if they were to do, as Paul challenges these false teachers to do in this verse, they would be, they themselves would be excluded from the blessing of the covenant. Because in Deuteronomy 23, there's a verse that, that specifically prohibits eunuchs from full participation in the covenant. They are to be excluded from the assembly of the Lord. They are, they are barred from the full participation in the covenant. So I think Paul is doing two things in this rather odd verse. He's saying, first of all, that these Judaizers have added to the gospel in such a way as to negate the simplicity and beauty of the, of the covenant of grace. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and Christ's sinless life and sacrificial death completes and fulfills the covenant of grace. And these Judaizers are confusing the Galatians, adding these unscriptural requirements for salvation. And secondly, Paul is, is pronouncing a curse upon these false teachers for what they have done. And he seems to be at the end of himself and, and full of frustration with what they have done and how they have led God's people astray. Those who have started well and were, were living the Christian life and they were going off the rails and they were going off to the side. They had, been, they, they, they had cut in on their Christian walk. And Paul is saying, in effect, go ahead, make yourselves into eunuchs and by doing so, exclude yourselves from the blessing of the covenant. He is pronouncing a curse upon them. It's as if he's saying, those who are unsettling God's people should just pack it up and go home. And finally, in order to end on a positive note, we look back at verse 10, the first part of verse 10. Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Paul knows that what God starts, he finishes. And it's, it's possible that some of the Galatians had been led astray. 
It's, it seems obvious that, that this threat to the church in this area is significant. It's, it's not a little thing because he makes such a big deal about it and he speaks in such strong language. He, he says back in, in chapter 3, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he, it's almost like he wants to grab him by the shirt collar and say, Listen to me, this false doctrine will, 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 will take you to hell. It's Christ alone. And you must make it that. And you can't trust in what these false teachers are teaching you. But he reminds them, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. He is saying that, that God will preserve his own. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And, and notice he says, I have I have confidence in the Lord. He knows that, that salvation is a work of the Lord from start to finish. That if, if we were to rely on ourselves, and this is true for you and me, if we were to rely on ourselves, we would not persevere. But I can preach a scriptural doctrine of the perseverance of the saints because God says it in His Word and God has sealed it. God calls us. He effectually calls us. He makes us His own. He says, my sheep know my voice and they will follow me. The Lord knows those who are His, 2 Timothy 2.19. Paul's confidence in the Lord and he knows that it is God who has called them and God who will keep them. And secondly, as we, as we go now to our, our second point in verse 13, he shifts to the freedom of those who are truly believers in Christ. He says that, that first of all, in verse 13, they were called to freedom. Of course, for many verses now, as, as we've been going through this text, Paul has stressed that believers in Christ are free from the burden of the law as a means of salvation. Once again, it's Christ alone. It's not Christ plus anything. If, if you try to obey the law, you're going to fail because you have to obey all of it. And he's already said, you can't and you won't, and so you're cursed. But the good news is, Christ did obey the law, and Christ has paid the penalty for sin. But he says, this freedom should never be an excuse to sin. Never should we say that since salvation saves us from sin, we can live any way that we please. It's similar to what he said in, in Romans 6.1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? We, I think, often have a skewed perception of freedom. We talked about this a little this morning as we, as we studied the, the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, chapter concerning the law of God because too many times and there's unfortunately even people within the church who teach that 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 because we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone that that it doesn't matter the law is of no use to us yet we are called to be obedient and and the apostle says here don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh Too many people think that freedom and license is one and the same. But license is, is loose living, is really what it is. It's de been defined as a liberty of action, especially when excessive, disregard of law or propriety, abuse of freedom. 
its self-centered and self-loving freedom at the expense of others. And really, that's what Paul is speaking against here, is license. For anyone who uses the freedom that is theirs in Christ in a self-serving way is really practicing licentiousness, is really living for themselves. Freedom is a, is a wonderful thing, and trusting in Christ alone for salvation is and should be the most freeing thing ever. But we're, 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 we're blessed to be a blessing, as God told Abraham in, in Genesis 12. We, we are saved, and there's something we're called to do. And here he tells us that we're called to serve others. He says, <clears throat> he says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, Paul uses this term flesh, and, and um, I look forward to the next set of verses that Pastor Greco will be preaching next week, where he really will get into this more. But Paul uses this term flesh, and he often pits it against the spirit, as he does in, in, in this verse and in the upcoming set of verses um, in, the, in the rest of chapter 5. But, but really the flesh he's speaking of is that self-loving, that self-serving part of man that is in opposition to the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. Anyone who equates freedom with license is really enslaved to sin. Jesus said in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So licentiousness... License is not really freedom, it's slavery. Freedom comes when we are saved from sin, not when we're saved to sin. Not when we're free to sin as much as we want. Because that is really slavery, because sin is slavery. So how do we know if we're walking in liberty? How do we know if we are enjoying true freedom as we should in Christ? Well, this text tells us love is the gauge. Love is the indicator of our freedom. We are freed to love and to serve one another. It says at the end of verse 13, but through love, serve one another. Now, what does it mean to serve one another? Does that mean you get out your best china and you put out three spoons and four forks and, and you do everything just so? There are people that do that really well. I'm not really one of those. Now, it is possible, let me say this, it is possible to do that and truly serve in a scriptural way. And I don't want to, to cast a, a bad light upon those that, that do that well. But really, serving is serving like Christ served, is loving like Christ loved. We are going through a book in our, our community group. It, it's, it's, it's an amazing book because it's so simple as it talks about our, our relationships within the body of Christ, but it's so profound. It's called Side by Side, and it has these little short chapters, and, and we're going through, and it, it has a chapter called Greet One Another. Now, do, do we as Christians need instruction on how to greet one another? Well, you think, that's so elementary. I don't think so. But listen, I think we do. Because too often... And, and we talked about, in our group, we talked about how you can use those, those three little words, how are you, and you can kind of slur them all together, and it's really insincere. How are you? You know, and you're not really asking that, you're just making a greeting. But you can say it like this, you can say, how are you? 
or how are you? And, and you, can, you can greet one another in such a way that the person you're greeting knows that you are inviting them to share something from their heart. And that's what we want to foster. That's the kind of relationships we want to foster within the body of Christ where we are real with one another. And then that book goes on and, and I, I, think it, I think it points to serving one another in this way. We, we give of ourselves. We give of our time. We truly listen with an ear of, of thinking about how can the gospel apply to this sister or brother in Christ? How can we bring the gospel to bear on their suffering and, and maybe on their sin? How can we encourage them? How can we help them? How can we walk alongside them as the title of that book? How can we be side by side with them in this journey in the Christian life? So we serve one another. We do it out of love for one another. Love is the gauge. We are freed to love and to serve one another. Paul reminds them that the whole law is summarized in the command to love. Paul is quoting Christ's words, as, and, and, and it's in each of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus is asked this question of, of which is the greatest commandment, and he responds with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's quoting from Mark chapter 12. Now, it's obvious you might say, well... Well, Paul only quotes the second part of that, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I think that, that the love for God, he, he certainly doesn't pass over that because it's unimportant. He is, he is I think it's, he's saying it's implied because he is speaking here in the context of, of relationships within the church and loving yourself, your, your neighbor as yourself and, and what our freedom is calling us to. Paul is, is probably dealing with a particular set of circumstances and problems in Galatia. We, he, he certainly, we certainly see that as we've gone along. And that seems evident as we look at the warning that he leaves us with in verse 15. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is, this is vivid language and it makes us think of, of wild animals who are on a feeding frenzy where, where it's just chaotic and, and frightening as, uh, you know, maybe a rabid animal is, is just tearing into another one. Um, and, and it's quite plausible that amid all the false teaching and confusing influences of the Judaizers that, that people would take sides, that there would be crosswords spoken. However, a church does not have to be beset with false teachers to have people who speak cutting remarks or biting comments. It's interesting, and, and as I was thinking about this, and, and Paul uses that language of, of biting and devouring one another, and, and we, we call a, a harsh comment something that's biting. And, and while we would never, uh, I hope none of us would ever, you know, go and physically bite someone else, um, sometimes our comments hurt in, in a similar way. But let me ask you, what is your gauge of how you measure your words? Do you speak words that edify? Do you speak words that build one another up? Do you seek to encourage with your words? 
And if you get angry and speak words that are harsh or maybe even biting, are you willing to say, I'm sorry? I spoke in a way that was hurtful and unloving, and I know that was probably hurtful, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Remember, Paul is saying love is the gauge. Love is the measuring stick. And if you have to just speak your mind to get something off your chest, then it's not likely love that's driving you. It's probably self-interest. And this verse is a warning to us that there's consequences for our hurtful attitudes and hurtful words. It's, it's a consuming thing. And as I, as I thought about that, this idea of being consumed by one another I was reminded by the fact, uh, about the, the, the fact that the sins of anger and bitterness and jealousy and holding grudges are consuming sins. And if you find yourself, your heart consumed by such sins, cry out to God and seek help from other believers, strong believers in the Lord. And cry out to God to, to give you the ability to forgive and turn from those sins because they are deeply rooted sometimes within the human heart. Jesus said in John 13, 35, that others will know that we are disciples, his disciples, if we have love for one another. Love should be the distinguishing mark of believers. We should love our family. We should love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we won't always love perfectly, but love should be the driving force behind our actions. And if they are, then you are showing what it means to walk in the Spirit, as we'll look at in the next set of verses. But if not, you are probably using your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So turn to Christ. Know His love. Flee to Christ who loved perfectly so that we could know and share the love that is ours in Christ. I'll leave you with this verse from 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Let us pray.